you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, continuing in our current series. It's focused on being a true witness. That, that true witness not only comes through personal experience and demonstrated change, but also through each of us being a vessel or a tool in the hand of God. Amen. Acts 1 and 8 says, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses. Somebody say, That's me. Unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, unto the uttermost part of the earth. Amen. God wants you to be a witness. That's more than simply inviting somebody to church, which is a wonderful thing to do, but He wants you to be a demonstrator of His witness and His power. As we were praying here on Wednesday night, the Lord brought to my mind the image of the potter at work with the clay and how he is not just any ordinary potter, but he's a master craftsman. He's an artist, we might say, who has no equal. And if we, as the clay, will yield to the pressure, and sometimes there is pressure, the pressure and the shaping of the master's pot, master potter's hands, we can be made into something that we did not realize was possible before we trusted God with who we are. It needs to be our prayer that, Lord, would help us to yield to your touch. Help us to allow you to shape us and to mold us. In last Sunday's lesson, we were teaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We've been working our way through uh, various gifts that the Lord has given as part of our opportunity to serve Him and His kingdom. Uh, last week we considered the nine gifts of the Spirit that are listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and we, we looked at the fact that they seem to fit into three groups and we took, last week we talked about the first two groups. One was the revelation gifts or the gifts that are to do with knowing which include the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge and the discerning of spirits. We also spoke about the power gifts or the gifts to do which include faith, the gifts of healings, and working of miracles. And these lessons are all on the podcast if you want to revisit them. Um, if you use the, the Apple podcast app at the moment, you may be experiencing some technical difficulties, which I'm endeavoring to resolve. But there are a variety of different ways you can access that podcast. Sometimes we try to cover a fair bit of information in a lesson and... Uh, if you are wanting to understand it more thoroughly, it's not a bad idea to go back and, and listen to that again, and I know many of you do. This week, we're going to conclude the groups of gifts that are listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 by looking at the last group, which are often called the utterance gifts, or to speak, which includes different kinds of tongues, the interpretation of tongues, and prophecy. Amen. The word tongue, we understand, refers to that thing that's in our mouths that gets us in all kinds of trouble. But it also is secondly a term to describe a language, a tongue being a language. And we understand in the context of the scripture that we are considering, it is in reference to language when it talks about different kinds of tongues. And so when somebody supernaturally speaks in an unknown tongue, or in a language they previously had no knowledge of, it is for one of several purposes. Firstly, and I would possibly suggest the most important in terms of priority, it is the evidence of somebody receiving the promise of the Holy Ghost for the first time. This is consistent with the experience and the testimony throughout the book of Acts. The church was born in the second chapter of Acts, and everybody in that upper room spoke in other tongues, as the Spirit of God moved on them. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter went to Cornelius' household and he preached the message of the gospel, the Bible says that they were all filled with the Holy Ghost while Peter was preaching. And the way that Peter knew that they had been filled with the Holy Ghost was that they spoke in other tongues. And in Acts chapter 19, when Paul found certain disciples at Ephesus, he spoke to them about receiving the Holy Ghost, which they at that point had not yet heard about. And then he talked to them about their baptism and he baptized them in Jesus' name and they were filled with the Holy Ghost and spoke in other tongues. This is the consistent scriptural witness of the initial evidence of receiving the promise of the Holy Ghost. 
Speaking in tongues can also serve as a part of our personal devotion and worship, which is for our own edification, which is a biblical word, which means to be strengthened, to be built up, to be to grow. Amen. As the Spirit of God flows through us, it refreshes us, it strengthens us, and it draws us nearer to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 14 and 4 underlines this concept when it says, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself. There's, there's a personal benefit there. But he that prophesieth edifieth the church. It's very important we understand that we do not measure our spirituality or our walk with God or our relationship with God by how much we speak in tongues. Some people get very obsessed with speaking in tongues. It's actually, it's actually while the motive may be good, it's a wrong focus to be obsessed with speaking in tongues. The focus needs to be with being filled with the Spirit of God. If we allow the Spirit of God to fill us and flow through us, the speaking with tongues will take care of itself. Amen. And we should seek to be filled with the Spirit. We should be yielded to the Spirit. And as the Spirit moves through us, the speaking in tongues will follow. I believe it's important for us to be regularly refreshed in the Holy Ghost. Amen. The Bible describes the Spirit of God as being like living water. And as much in the natural as water is life and death, in the spiritual, the Holy Ghost is life and death. And we need to be regularly refreshed. But we've got to be careful that we don't try to regulate that or legislate that and say, well, you have to speak in tongues every day or you have to speak in tongues every time you pray. The moment you start to do that, you miss the point. The point is about relationship with Jesus Christ. Relationship with Jesus Christ includes Him moving on us, in us, and through us by His Spirit, which will often be expressed with speaking in other tongues. Amen. Amen. There are also times when speaking in tongues plays a part in intercession. If you're not familiar with what that word means, when you intercede, you stand in the gap for somebody. In our prayer time, as we are led by the Spirit of God, we may begin to pray for somebody. We may be led to pray for somebody or a situation or a, a church or it might be a variety of things. And the Spirit of God begins to move on us in an intense, powerful fashion and we can enter into a time of intercession where we feel like God has us positioned spiritually to intercede for that situation, to make a difference in that situation. Romans chapter 8 verses 26 and 27 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities or our weaknesses, our shortcomings, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And then, which is really the focus of today's lesson, there is also, when it comes to speaking in tongues, a public utterance or a public message in tongues that is to be interpreted for general edification or strengthening of the church, which is for everybody. It's not private or personal. We, we experienced that this morning during the worship service, and we regularly do. Amen. It appears from the Word of God that when believers do speak in tongues supernaturally, that it can be an earthly language, as it was on the day of Pentecost, whether it's an ancient language or a present-day language, or it can be a heavenly language. We get this insight from 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 where Paul said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. In the context of that verse, which is very important to the gifts of the Spirit, which we'll get into next week, is, the, is love being central to whatever we do for God and however God uses us. And so he's saying, even if I do all of those things, love is the key. In Acts chapter 2, and in other instances even today, even though the language is unknown to the speaker, it may be known to a bystander and can testify to them of the power of God. I know people personally who have been praying in the Holy Ghost and someone has come to them and asked them where they learned to speak that language and they haven't been able to answer that question, but it was the language of the person that, that overheard them. God miraculously revealing His power to that individual. That's incredible that God would supernaturally use somebody in somebody's mother tongue to reach for their hearts. Amen. 
God loves us. He'll do whatever He can to reach for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm going to read the first five verses. It says, follow after charity, which most translations use that word love for charity. It's talking about a sacrificial love. And desire spiritual gifts, but rather that you may prophesy. For he that speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men, but unto God. For no man understands him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries, or things he doesn't understand. But he that prophesies speaks unto men to edification, building up, strengthening, to exhortation, encouragement, and to comfort. And he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself, but he that prophesies edifies the church. Paul said, I would that you all spoke in tongues, but rather that you prophesied, for greater is he that prophesies than he that speaks with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive that edifying or that strengthening. So the gift of tongues is a little bit unique in that it is given not to operate by itself, but it is given to be coupled together with the gift of interpretation of tongues. So while the gift of tongues is definitely supernatural, without understanding, without understanding the message that is, is being given without interpretation, it doesn't achieve its purpose. That's why Paul said that he that prophesies is greater. It wasn't about people being greater than other people. It wasn't saying, well, you prophesy, so you're greater than me. That's not what, that, what it's talking about, is that when, we, when prophecy is involved and also the interpretation of tongues, the gift achieves its full purpose and the church is edified or strengthened. There is always, God always wants to do something through the gifts of the Spirit. And so when understanding is brought across, the purpose is achieved in the will of God. Now, when, when the Spirit of God is moving, the gift of, inter, of tongues and consequently interpretation, as Spirit-filled believers, we need to be sensitive. We need to be sensitive to the move of God's Spirit in the house of God. And if the individual who feels that they have a message in tongues needs to firstly be sensitive to whether or not it is God's Spirit, and then they need to wait for an opportunity to speak. They need to wait for the right time. And the congregation as a body needs to be sensitive as well. And when you're filled with the Holy Ghost over time, you should be able most of the time to sense when God is wanting to move in the supernatural. There's something in the Spirit that you sense God is wanting to speak. And when we respond to that, we wait silently for that to occur. You'll often find that when the Holy Ghost is wanting to move in the gift of tongues and interpretation in the service, we don't have to say, now let's all be quiet, settle down. God wants to speak. When we're filled with the Holy Ghost, there's an awareness of what God is doing. And we need to be sensitive to the Holy Ghost. Amen. God is not the author of confusion. And if an appropriate pause doesn't happen and you feel like God wants to use you, you have to trust the Lord that He will provide the opportunity at the right time. We've got to remember if He's moving on us, He'll make the opportunity happen. We, he doesn't need our help. We have to remember that. Sometimes when an individual is first used in the gift of tongues or in the interpretation of tongues or even in prophecy, they can feel a really powerful anointing of the Holy Ghost comes upon them, almost feels like it's going to burst out of them. And many of you can testify of how you felt the first time God was going to use you. And if you've had that experience, you can connect with that. And if you've, the Lord has used you in that, you need to recognize He's given you that gift. It wasn't a once-off. It's something He's put in you for the edifying of the church. It doesn't have to be every service, but it has to be as the Spirit of God leads. But we've also got to recognize that we should not automatically assume that every time God wants to use you, you'll have that incredible, powerful anointing you had the first time. Sometimes that's just the Lord pushing us off the ledge. There are other times we have to be sensitive to what the Spirit of God is doing and learn to recognize His voice. Remember, the underlying principle of all of this is our relationship with God. The closer your relationship with God, the more accurately you're able to discern what God is trying to do. Amen. And that's important when we're operating in the gifts of the Spirit. It's not always in that powerful anointing that your head feels like it's going to blow off. Sometimes it's almost, I describe it, my experience is that it's almost like the Lord's tapping me on the shoulder. And you have to learn to recognize when God is moving in that fashion. If you're always waiting for it to happen exactly the same way, you can miss out on what God is wanting to do. Amen. 
If a tongue is given, if a message in tongues is given, we need to wait for the interpretation. If more than one tongue is given consecutively and no interpretation comes forth, those that have been giving the tongues should stop doing so and just allow the service to continue to flow. So for a definition, the gift of interpretation of tongues is the supernatural ability to translate or explain the meaning of a public message in tongues and needs to work together. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 12 and 13. says, Even so ye, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. That needs to be your focus. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. That the, the instruction is that there is a purpose. We want to see God's will complete. We don't do half the job. Amen. Some things to keep in mind when it comes to the gift of interpretation of tongues. God uses an individual's style of speaking and vocabulary when he uses them. Incorrect grammar or an error in pronunciation does not disqualify a message. Contrary to some people's opinion, when we get to heaven, we will not speak King James English. Some people feel like when they, they move in the gifts of the Spirit, they have to say thee and thou and put E-T-H on the end of all their words, you know. Blesseth and favoreth and loveth. But that's not the case. God will use you as you are. And sometimes two people in one service may have an interpretation for the same tongue and they might find there are differences. That doesn't mean necessarily that one is right and one is wrong. It's just the way God uses you to communicate. The essence of the message is what God is wanting to get across. And so you will not suddenly have the ability to use academic words that you never learnt before. God will use you in the way that you speak naturally. Amen. An interpretation may appear to be shorter or longer than the message in tongues. Don't let that bother you. That's perfectly normal when you go from one language to another. And I've shared this before, but when I've traveled, many of those churches you saw in the slideshow, I've had the privilege of preaching in. And when you preach with an interpreter, sometimes you say something that's only a few words and they will speak for quite a long time and you feel like they're adding. It's like, did I actually say all that? And then there are other times where you make what you feel like is a long statement. You think, well, I better stop now so they can interpret. And they, they just go, Bleh, and it's done. And it's like, but that's how language works. Going from one language to another is not always the same number of syllables and words. So, you know, if a tongue goes for 10 seconds, it doesn't matter if the interpretation goes for 5 or goes for 15. We trust the Lord is in that. If God is moving on you, if you've never been used in the gift of interpretation before, but you feel like He's moving on you, you may not have the whole message when He prompts you. You may just have the beginning. Begin to speak by faith. Allow the Lord to lead and stop when you feel God has stopped. Don't, don't ever feel like, well, you know, that's not very much. I need to flesh that out a bit. That's not your job. Your job is to communicate what the Spirit of God has impressed upon your heart. Do not feel compelled to have a certain length to reach quality. Also, do not feel compelled to have certain beginnings or endings. We are in a Spirit-filled church. We know it's thus saith the Lord. We, we know that's what's going on. We don't need to add that. We just need to deliver what God has given us and leave it at that we can do i'm not saying that's a, a grievous sin but it's a bit of a habit that we can fall into but it's not really necessary we must be careful that the thoughts that we convey are from the spirit of god not a product of our own issues or concerns the gift of interpretation of tongues is not an opportunity for you to fix things up in the church Thus saith the Lord, would you parents please stop your children from playing in the kitchen during the preaching? That is not the Spirit of God. That is us as we get older and crankier and we want our kids, we want the kids to behave. And when I say that, I include myself in that. Amen. So we need to keep that in mind. It is for the edification, the building up, the strengthening of the church. If you have the gift of interpretation, a general guideline, not a rule. But a general guideline is that you should respond by faith with that interpretation sooner rather than later. The more you think about it, the more your own mind gets involved. If God is moving on you, it's better to respond sooner rather than later. Because you start thinking about it, you start tweaking it and editing it and thinking, well, trust God and give the message. 
let God take care of it. That's why you may or may not notice, but when there is a tongue and there is an interpretation, I don't wait for a really long time. If it doesn't come within a fairly short period of time, we're going to move on. God can make that happen again at a later point if he wants to. Amen. The gift of prophecy, the last one in this group of three. The word prophesy has three basic meanings. First one is to foretell events, to tell about things that are going to happen. Second one is to speak under inspiration. And the third one is to exercise the prophetic office, which we'll get to shortly. In a general sense, any speech under the anointing of the Spirit of God, preaching, witnessing, teaching a Bible study, is a form of prophecy in a generalized sense. Prophecy, by definition, is the gift of a supernatural message directly from God in the language of the speaker and hearers. So it doesn't need, it's kind of like the gift of interpretation, but without the tongue. There isn't an, a, a, an unknown language to begin with. It's just a word that comes from God. The gift of prophecy can operate in a variety of ways. A preacher may speak prophetically in the midst of a sermon. Someone in the congregation may address the congregation with a public message in the known language, like we just said, much like the interpretation of tongues. Sometimes God will anoint one individual to give prophecy to another. In a general sense, every anointed preacher prophesies when they preach. But sometimes during the course of a message, God can give a particular word in that message for the church or for individuals that are in that church gathering. At times, the person preaching may not fully realize what is happening. Only the hearer does. But at other times, the preacher may know that he has just spoken a specific word for somebody. He may or may not know whom that is directed to. God may reveal to him. Sometimes God doesn't. Amen. Public prophecy. Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 28. It says, In these days came prophets from Jerusalem under Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should come a great dearth or a, a famine throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Remembering that Acts is written looking back, so it, the, the proof of prophecy is whether or not it comes to pass. And it did come to pass. That was a prophecy for the known world at the time. Then there is private prophecy, or rather, when we say private, we're meaning more of a personal nature. Acts 21, starting at verse 10, says, And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus, same guy. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle, or that which he bound like a belt, and bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owns this girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go to Jerusalem. They begged Paul, Don't go there. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we cease saying, The will of the Lord be done. It's interesting that although Paul heard the prophecy, and as far as we can tell, he knew it was from the Lord, he didn't, it didn't deter him from going to Jerusalem. He still had to be sensitive about what, how to receive that prophecy and how to apply that in his own life. It didn't change his plans. And we, we must be sensitive to the Spirit of God ourselves when we consider the application of a prophecy. People run around prophesying everybody left, right, and center, telling them this and that. That has the problem, that has the potential to cause a lot of trouble. The primary purpose of the spiritual gifts is not to become an authority in someone's life, but to reveal the will of God that would otherwise remain unknown. Instead, the spiritual gifts are a part of a process of edification and confirmation. The one who prophesies must be careful not to let his own assumptions influence the prophecy and not to jump to conclusions about the meaning of the prophecy for someone else. And the one who receives a prophecy must be careful not to let it substitute for his own relationship with God, the Word of God, or spiritual judgment. Often people find themselves in confusion and difficult circumstances by reacting to things that people say to them 
without considering where those things fit in the process of their life that God is overseeing. If you're always looking for a word, then I would suggest that you're not in the word enough. There's a lot of people just want a sign. They want somebody to speak into their lives. That's why he's given us the word of God. The gifts of the Spirit go together with the Word of God. They don't work instead of it, they work with it. And my notes make this statement. The gifts of the Spirit work with the Word of God, the will of God, and the man of God. There's only one Spirit. That's what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and verse, starting at verse 27, says, If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course or in order, let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophets speak two or three and let the other judge. And if anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For you may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and that all may be comforted. And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. This passage of Scripture gives us some practical guidelines for the operation, particularly of the vocal gifts of the Spirit, when God's people are gathered together and they are to be exercised in the right fashion. So some of the, one of the instructions we're given is that in the service, we should allow two or at the most three public messages in tongues, waiting appropriately for interpretation, we should also do the same thing when it comes to prophecy. It's, there's, there's a limit there because we could just keep going all day and it, it loses what God is trying to do. There is a misunderstanding. There is a certain view of some, that some places hold that because the Scripture teaches, let it be by two or three, that you have to have two or three of these gifts in every single service. Anytime mankind tries to regulate the supernatural, there's error involved. This is instruction for order and not being chaotic in a service. It is not saying that we put the supernatural in our schedule. We, I don't have on my little notepad here, you know, after the third song, we need a tongue and interpretation. After the fifth song, we have to have our first prophecy. That's carnal. But as the Spirit of God enables, just as God enabled us to receive the Spirit, He enables us to operate in the Spirit. The, the numerical limitations that are given in this instruction is so that we keep things in order when we gather together in the house of God. Amen. The, in the uh, same instruction tells us that, that we should allow to at the most three public prophecies. That's enough for God to get across what He wants to get across. We, as I've said and I'll say again, the supernatural is always to complement the Word of God, never to replace. And so when God's people get together the primary purpose is for us to hear the Word of God. What happens around that is a part of what God is wanting to do. Our worship is obviously we come, we get together to exalt the name of the Lord, but worship primarily happens to prepare an environment where our hearts are ready to receive the Word of God. It's the Word of God that is, is the center point of when God's people gather together. And the, the, the instruction tells us that those that hear the prophecies should evaluate them. The word they use is judge. Because while God is infallible, no human being is. Amen. Therefore, any message from a human could be wholly or partially in error. As listeners, we have the responsibility to discern whether a prophecy is from God and if so, how it applies to our lives. In the context of this passage, to judge does not mean to find fault or condemn or to object publicly, but it means to evaluate, evaluate the validity and the relevance of the message. There is a witness in the Holy Ghost. If you have the Spirit of God, when the gifts of the Spirit in operation, you can tell when it's the Spirit of God. You should feel that witness in the Holy Ghost. And finally, we are told that the Spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets, which means that we are in control of our actions. That means when God gives you spiritual gifts, they don't take over you. You don't become some weird Pentecostal zombie that's beyond your own control. But God has given you that gift, but he wants you to operate that gift wisely and in order and in a manner that edifies the body of Christ. Amen. We are to operate the gifts in an appropriate fashion. Amen. All right, let's move on. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. 
We could spend a lot of time on all of these lists, but we could end up being here for many weeks on this same subject. Let me just foreshadow, we're going to complete the three lists of gifts uh, that we're looking at in this series today. And next week will be our last lesson. And all of this teaching is, is only as valuable as its application. And so next week we're going to be talking about things that help us, things that hinder us when it comes to our giftings and callings and things that God wants us to do in the kingdom of God. We can, go, we can go home with a head full of knowledge and you can hardly lift your head up because it's so full, but unless it finds application, it's not achieving the will of God. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high... He led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. That's a quote from the book of Psalms, if you want to look that up later. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. I'm not going to spend any time on verses 8 through 10 this morning, but to, to give you just a basic statement of what that's about, it's talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ coming to earth, his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension back into heaven. That's what those few verses are talking about. Amen. And so there is, there is a brackets or parenthesis at the beginning of verse 9 through the verse, end of verse 10. So at the end of verse 8 is he gave gifts unto men. The continuation of that thought is in verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom, from Christ, the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. There's a lot in that passage. Amen. But in the midst of this passage, we are given the last group of gifts that we are going to look at in this series, in verse 11, where it says, And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go through all 16 verses verse by verse, but I would very much encourage you to do that later to really consider the context. But I will point out a couple of things. The first 8 to 10 verses of this passage there is a very strong emphasis on being a part of a body, on the fact that there is one spirit and of serving with humility and a right spirit towards our brothers and sisters. If you think about the scriptures with the other two groups of gifts that we've been looking at, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans chapter 12, you'll see that is consistent in all these groups, that there is an emphasis on uh, being a part of the body, the fact that it's all by the Spirit of God and that it's by the grace of God that we're able to do these things. Amen. What this tells us is that when we think of any of the gifts that God gives in these lists, they're only going to be successful in God's sight if we use them the right way and with the right spirit. Then when we get past verse 11, verses 12 through to 16, tell us what the gifts are for. 
The gifts in this list are for the growth and maturity of the saints that they might serve in the kingdom and that the body might be strengthened or built up. They are so that we might have a solid foundation of understanding, not being easily blown around by all kinds of false doctrines or being easily confused or deceived. And they are so that the whole body would function well, every part working together, growing and becoming stronger by the love of God. Amen. You can, I would encourage you to read that whole chunk of Scripture and, and think about those things, but that's just a bit of a summary surrounding verse 11. So verse 11 gives us this list of five gifts or callings that are often described as the ministry gifts or the five-fold ministry. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. I'm going to read a statement from David Bernard's book on spiritual gifts about this passage. This is what he writes. He said, This passage introduces what is often called the fivefold ministry. The five ministries listed are not simply God's gifts to individuals within the church, but they are God's gifts to the church as a whole. While Romans 12 speaks of abilities or functions, Ephesians 4 speaks of offices. The indication is that the gifts of Ephesians 4 are more formal or defined ministries in and for the whole church. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave gifts to the church, the ministers of the gospel. As the passage reveals, the people who hold these offices are recognized leaders in the church, responsible for equipping others and thereby helping the church to function effectively, to grow into maturity and become established in doctrinal truth. The nature of their work requires that they be preachers of the gospel. In modern terminology, we typically call them ministers, using this designation in a special sense, even though the term minister is a general one signifying a servant or a worker. I thought he put that very well. So to put it plainly, to break down what Brother Bernard wrote, the ministry office gifts have a strong focus on the preaching and teaching of the Word of God to reach to equip, to enable, to disciple and train the church so that the gifts that are in the church will be used the way that God intended them to be used. So just briefly, as we try not to keep you too late today, to, to consider these five gifts. An apostle. An apostle simply means somebody that is sent forth, someone that is sent with a message. The 12 apostles that we read about in the Gospels were unique in that they walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry and they are considered foundational to the church. If you look later on at Ephesians 2, you'll see that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You get to Revelation, the names of the 12 apostles are in the foundation of the heavenly city. So they, they were, to a certain degree, a unique 12. There were, however, and still are other apostles, such as Paul and Barnabas, who were not part of the 12, but still very much apostles. And there are others in the New Testament that are listed. The word apostle is sometimes used today in modern church environments to refer to a senior leader or overseer. Um, it's a word that's used in some settings far too freely. It's a word that is sometimes used as a self-label. Somebody labels themselves apostle so-and-so. Generally speaking, that's a concern. Not always, but often it is. The more accurate understanding of the original meaning of apostle is someone who is sent forth to a place where the gospel has not been preached to begin a work for the kingdom of God. A great example of this ministry are missionaries who go into places both at home and overseas where the truth of God's word has not been established. Now, I don't know many missionaries that would describe themselves as apostles. In fact, most of the missionaries that I know, if you suggested they're apostles, they would say, no, please don't call me that. But that's effectively what their ministry is. They are sent forth into a place to establish a foothold for the kingdom of God. A prophet. A prophet is one who imparts special messages or direction from God. While many people in the church may prophesy from time to time with the gift of the Spirit, the office of a prophet is filled by someone whom God uses consistently in this manner in their public ministry. All preachers should preach the word of God and preach under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But the prophet is specially called and enabled to proclaim 
the specific will, purpose, and counsel of God for his people. They will frequently communicate messages concerning God's plan for the future or the church's need to take action as a part of God's plan. Prophecy is not limited to foretelling the future. Sometimes we tend to, that when we think of prophecy, we think of somebody telling you what's going to happen in the future. It does include that, but it can also include somebody who speaks encouraging words that build faith. Some prophets, you see this in the Old Testament, and I know of some even today, that are described as seers, S-E-E-R-S, or someone who in the Holy Ghost can see things in the spiritual realm beyond the natural, which is connected to the message that they have from God. Samuel, in fact, in the Old Testament, it seems they were called seers before they were called prophets, somebody that God allows to see things supernaturally. It's not talking about wacky dreams and visions. It's talking about messages that come from God. The evangelist. The word evangelist comes from a very similar Greek word that's translated as the word gospel. And that effectively gives us the definition of the office and the role of an evangelist. An evangelist is a preacher of the gospel, the bringer of the good news, someone who is reaching for lost souls. An evangelist is always looking to reach souls, to see them born again, to see the church grow. That is the office of the evangelist. And again, you may say, when we give these simple definitions, you may say, well, all of us should do that. And yes, all of us should do these things. We should all be we shouldn't go, well, I'm not going to witness to anybody because I'm not called to be an evangelist. We should all care about souls. But there are people that are called to these offices, these ministry gifts particularly. The office of the pastor. In the New Testament, the majority of the times that the Greek word, this word is translated from, it's translated as shepherd. The pastor, is, is the picture is of a shepherd. And we know when you think about sheep, sheep need to be fed the right stuff. They need to be discouraged from eating the wrong stuff. They need to be protected from predators. They need to be encouraged to stay in the flock. Jesus used the example of sheep that wander off. They need to be led through the seasons and the years of their lives. And they need to be treated and cleansed when disease finds its way into the flock. Nowadays, in a mod, well, I was going to say a modern context, but the practice of dipping sheep has been happening for nearly 200 years. And what that, if you're not familiar with that, that's okay. Many of us have probably never seen it. But sheep dipping is when they will take the sheep and pass them through usually a narrow channel into a, a, a deep area where there is a lovely blend of various ingredients that are designed to kill certain parasites and insects and diseases on the sheep's body. And the, the, the shepherds will do that. I mean, we don't really think of them as shepherds so much in Australia because they're normally overseeing like thousands of, of sheep. But they will do that especially around lambing time because they understand that those diseases and infestations can be easily transferred from mother to lamb. There's something in that for us and where we are spiritually when we are involved in helping new saints. Amen. So a pastor, much like a shepherd, has a flock or a group of people that they are responsible for. That responsibility includes to lead, to care for, to feed, to warn and to protect. A teacher, as the name suggests, a teacher is someone who is called to impart knowledge, but also to communicate the application of that knowledge or what to do with that knowledge. Many of us could testify of the things that we learned at school, of how there were some of them that we never used when we left school. So in a certain sense, that knowledge doesn't have a lot of value. When I was at high school, I didn't really know what career direction I was uh, interested in or suitable for and so I did subjects that when I left school and went into my trade had absolutely no value whatsoever still now some 32 years after I finished school I've never used calculus in my day-to-day -day life some people do there are people that are engineers there are people that work in different fields that use that but for me it serves no purpose I don't get up many days and look for ways to solve my problems with trigonometry or any of those other things that we learned at school. They, cert, cert, they fit certain things. And so the point, what I'm trying to make, the point I'm trying to make is that when we teach the Word of God, it needs to find application. Knowledge is always designed to change, to transform, to produce fruit in the kingdom of God. It's never designed just to be retained and think, well, I'm pretty smart now, I learned that. Amen. Again, all of us need to be able to teach the Word of God to some level. 
But the office of the teacher has a particular role in the leading and training of a church. The significance of the ministry office gifts is that their purpose is to see the church body healthy, growing and productive. As leaders in the church, there is a certain level of respect that should be given to these offices. Now, I want to unpack that just a little bit this morning. There are some people through the years I've had conversations and heard comments and some people think that ministers are more important than other saints or that you don't really matter unless you're a minister. That's a false understanding. It's an incorrect perspective that can come from several sources. This is not an exhaustive list, but this is some. Some people have had a very negative experience in church environments or cultures where leaders can be considered to be beyond question or, you know, you know, in some incredible, you know, they sleep in the room next to God while the rest of us are just normal people. Others can have that perspective because of a lack of biblical understanding. Some people feel like ministers are more important and, and others don't really matter because they have insecurity within themselves about themselves. Some people it's bitterness because they believe they've been overlooked for something or a position that they thought should have been theirs has been given to something else. One thing that is consistent throughout the scripture regarding the body of Christ and especially in these lists of gifts that we've been looking at, it's so hard to say lists of gifts, these, these lists that we've been teaching about, one thing that is consistent is that we are all to have humility and we are all to honor one another. And the other thing that is also consistent, that is in Romans 12, it's in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Ephesians 4, is that we are all to function by the grace of God according to the measure of faith that He has given us. So whatever He's called us to do, He's equipping and enabling us to do that. So it's Him working through us. And when we are instructed to honor and obey certain people in certain positions... Biblically, it is because their role or their calling is for the benefit of us as the church. Hebrews 13 and 17. I love this verse because when you read it, how you understand it has a lot to do with which side of a relationship you read it from. But it says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. As soon as you say that first line, everybody's flesh goes, Nyeh. Let's be honest. Our flesh says, I don't want to do what somebody else says. I'm not interested in submitting myself to somebody else. But then it says, the reason for that is that they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. So our response to that scripture is connected to our benefit. The writer of Hebrews says if you do what they ask you to do and you submit yourselves to them, they want to be able to give a good report to the Lord. They want to be able to say, Lord, bless that person. You know, they're faithful and they don't want to be able to go to the Lord and say, Lord, bring them back. They've gone away from the things of God, They've whatever it might be. It's, it's for our benefit. And when you read that scripture as somebody having authority, it's incredibly sobering because you are required to watch and you are required to give account. When you read it as somebody under authority, it's like, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. But it is, it is for our benefit. So anytime the scripture gives us instruction to behave in a certain way towards certain offices and, and roles in the church, it is for our benefit. 1 Timothy 5 and 17 says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine so elders or leaders we might say who lead well are to be given double honor i don't know how you measure double honor not sure what the units of honor are but especially the scripture says or in other words as a priority those who work hard in the preaching and teaching of the word of god so that's why we honor people that god calls to ministry office gifts not because god loves them more than us not because they're better than us. Often, as the scripture says, God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. But it's because God has positioned them for our health, our spiritual well-being, and our honoring of that office is for our benefit. Amen. And you might say, well, that's easy for you to say. You're the pastor. You get to tell everybody what to do. If that's what you think I do, you need to hang around a little while. But it has always been the benefit for me. I still have people that I submit myself to. 
that I obey because I know they care for my soul. Amen. So we honor and respect those who God has given us to preach and teach the Word of God. We do so because of their role and function in our lives, their role and function in the body of Christ, not because they are more valuable in the sight of God. Paul spoke in his greetings in some of his epistles about being called to be an apostle. It is my experience and observation, and I believe it lines up with Scripture, that the ministry officers, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, come with a call from God. It's not the same as some of the other lists of gifts that are given, but they come with a call from God. Not everybody experiences that call like Saul of Tarsus did on the road to Damascus. He had that incredible experience where a blinding light came and and God spoke to him and he had something that there was no way he could explain that away. Not everybody, some people have that kind of experience, not everybody does. For some, it's a gradual process that unfolds over time. But there is a point, I believe, where we know that it is what the Lord wants us to do if we are called to that office. If it is a case of, well, if I do or I don't, it doesn't worry me, I'm okay either way. I don't think that's a call. I think if there is a call in our lives, then it should stir our spirit and trouble us if we're not answering that call. I think there's something in us that that should not be comfortable because we're not fulfilling the purpose of God in our lives. And it is that calling that keeps a person going through times of discouragement and adversity when in the natural you would rather walk away. An elder wrote to me once, I think it was about the time I became pastor here, and he said these words. He said, there will be times when all you have is your calling. And he said, that needs to be enough. You need to know this is what God wants me to do. To be called of God to preach and teach the Word of God is a wonderful privilege and it's vital for the church. And that's what these ministry offices are for. God uses them to teach, to edify, to strengthen the church, that the gifts that He's putting in the church are all working together build up the body, establish, grow the kingdom of God and bring glory to Jesus Christ. Let's stand together this morning.